Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Exploring the Parsha class with Rabbi Rebecca Schatz and Rabbi Matt Shapiro. We're in chapter 14 of Vayikra. We're we're, we're later on in the parak, and the truth matters that when we get to the part of the parak that we're going to be focusing on, it's on a new topic. So we're going to be moving through these 30 plus psukim with some rapidity. But basically, chapter 14 focuses um, on the the ritual for someone who has tzara'at. Um, I'm using that Hebrew word intentionally to start because... Sara'at is primarily translated as um, leprosy um, that you see here in verse two. This is the this is the Torah of the Mitzorah, the, the rituals dealing with someone um, who is a leper. But particularly, as we'll see in the psukim that we're exploring, um, which is about a house, um, it seems to be indicating like what. Like does a house a house gets leprosy? Like does does that really check out? And seems to be indicating a different kind of something going on. The best framework for which we have these days is leprosy, even if even if there's really something else happening. Okay, so here's what you got to do when there's someone who has sarat. It gets reported to the priest. The priest sort of goes and then see. Oh yeah, mm, yes, Barbara. I'm kind of curious. How far back does the does the translation of the word become leper and leprosy? Because I don't know how far back it goes that we call leprosy leprosy in our language, which is Hansen's disease. They're two totally different diseases, and I'm curious which one the people that call Hansen's disease leprosy, which was called leprosy before it was called Hansen's disease, or the Bible calling it leprosy, which is correct. <laughs> I know that's kind of a weird question, but it always bothers me to see these people being called lepers because they can be cleansed, but you can't just go cleanse a person with leprosy. I think the um, the way that I've heard it un, uh, explained is that the 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 reason that it's defined as leprosy is based on the symptoms and the way in which it looked on people's skin, less based on if it actually is the same as what we would call leprosy today. Totally um, so I don't, I don't know anything about leprosy, nor do I know anything about um, what the Torah, what the Torah uh, is seems to be describing that we are calling leprosy. Like I don't know what Sarat would have potentially been called back in the day. Um, but it seems like based on how the Torah describes this type of skin, and as Rabbi Shapiro said, house um, uh, infliction, that that's what, that's what it seems to be closest to in our language. Okay, Shapiro, Rabbi Shapiro, continue. <laughs> Shots, yes. Shots and Shapiro, attorneys at... Torah. Um, okay, so um, Renee, I see your hand. I'm going to get us to our verses, and then we'll we'll take it from there. Is that groovy? Great, big nod. Thank you. Um, be, because ultimately, like I said, we're we're going to be landing in kind of a different place on this. So, if and when someone has this uh, tzara'at, basically, here's here's what you got to do. The priest goes and checks it out. And then as, as we have grown accustomed to over these past few weeks, with the exception of my birthday week, living in Vayikra, um, th- there, there are then, th- there's a, a sacrificial ritual that happens in order for there to be um, a cleansing, that there is a bird that is slaughtered, there is a uh, live bird sprinkle, right? It's, it's this fascinating... I mean, um, cedar word, crimson stuff, hyssop is actually um, the, I think the primary. Is a pretty strong word for what this is. I was going to say that those are the key ingredients in the perfume that Rabbi Schatz wears. Um, no, I don't really wear perfume, but no. Okay, it's a joke. Um, 
so there's this ritual that happens and there's also something that the person i mean in the context here it's it's always referred to as as him um unclear if that's because that's the right the the default gender in biblical hebrew or if it's dafka um a man um but he has to wash his hand he has to wash his clothes he has to shave his hair he has to bathe and then there's a period of time in which he has to be uh outside of the camp and after that period of time after that period of purification um there is then um sort of offerings that he has to make in order for the process to be completed after which the priest in turn, uh, like like I said, I'm moving through this relatively quickly, the priest in turn has a series of um, actions that he takes in order um, to sort of receive these offerings um, and complete the process. Interestingly, and we're not, we're like, again, moving through this quickly, but I'll just name as well in verse 21, it recognizes that that there might be some difference in basically financial means for someone for whom this is impacting, and that actually it's it's not standardized. That there is sort of like a, a income based way of reflecting what the person brings in order for this expiation to happen. Um, leprosy it can happen to anyone, um, and so therefore it's it's recognized that. Um, basically financial means or lack thereof should not be an obstacle um, for this process of, of purification coming out of the, the process of being a Mitzorah um, to occur. Once more laying out, okay, in these different circumstances, if there are different offerings that are brought, in turn, this is what the person brings forward. This is what the priest does. It's relatively similar in terms of how that unfolds. Um, and then, right, again, there's these different offerings. This, this is the ritual that happens, um, for the person who is experiencing this tzarat. Adkan, that's where we're at. Here's the piece that we're going to be focusing in on. Vaidabir Adonai Velaron Lemohor. Moving into verses 34 and 35. Kitavo el When you come to Kana'an, Asher Ani Noten Lachem Lachuzah, that I give to you as, as a holding, as a possession. Venatati Negat Saraat Bevet Eretz Achuzat Chem. And I, and, and I'm going to differ from the translation here. The translation says, and I inflict an eruptive plague. I will, I'm going to go more literal with the translation and I give this plague of Tsara'at into the house in the land that you have come to possess. Uva asher lo habayit and the person who, uh, it is his house where right? the translation says the owner of the house, but the, the Hebrew is a bit wonkier and the person for whom it is his house comes. And, and tells to the Kohen saying, I'm, I'm intentionally wonkifying these words because they're, they're a little bit wonky. Uh, something like a plague has appeared upon my house. Um, after these, these verses, the, the process unfolds, but even within these two verses, we're going to, we're going to focus in on these two. We're going to focus in on chapter 14, verses 34 and 35, because this, this situation seems to have morphed like sort of like Barbara, you're, you're asking, well, is it, is it this disease? Is it that, that disease? This seems to be talking about something quite different, that this isn't a physical affliction that's happening to a person. This seems to be talking about something that's happening specifically to like, a, a place, a, a structure, um, which which is interesting, and in the, the construct, um, a, a number of the constructs happening here seem to beg further. Kushiot is my elegant transition over to Rabbi Schatz to take it from here. Great. Okay. Wasn't that, wasn't that elegant? Super elegant. You use the word kushiot, and here we are asking. I'm, for- I'm noted for my elegance. Um, yes. So, Kushiot, any questions on these three verses? We're going to stick to these three verses. Um, and if you have any other questions about other pieces, we can ask them at the end. Yes, Jay. Were these houses already 
erupted with a plague before these people moved into their houses? Oh, interesting. Um, great question. I don't have an answer, but that's a, that's a great question. Um, it does seem as though the uh, there there's a type of like a moment of possession that has to happen before the eruptive plague happens. But it's a it's a great point that um, that it's possible that they only experienced the Sarat once they were actually in the home. I don't know. Great question. Elon. I think it's interesting in the two sentences. In the first sentence, it says, and I inflict an eruptive plague upon a house. In the second sentence, it says, something like a plague has appeared upon my house. So my question is, why in the second, why in the second sentence, second verse isn't the homeowner saying a plague has appeared upon my house is there something significant in in uh, the homeowner not exactly saying a plague but it's something like a plague? great or not not knowing what how like how to identify it right like if it was made so clear that this was going to be inflicted how come you have to say that it's kenega that it could be something like a plague that's a brilliant question yeah renee so two things. One, um, does saros come from the word, or is it somehow related to the word sarot? And okay. yeah. and and um, when it says it's that the plague is upon a house, what house? Whose house? Great. Um, I don't believe that it comes from the same word as. Are you talking about the word saros? Yeah, or sarot in Hebrew. Yeah. Yeah. I don't believe that it that it does, um, given just the spelling of it, but it's possible that in terms of um, the way in which the word Suris came about, it's possible that it came from the from the idea or the infliction of Sarat on a people that I don't know. Uh, but based on spelling, I don't think that the that the words mean the same thing. Because it would make sense. I mean, they they obviously Sarot is Sara is Sarot. It, it's a problematic thing. So it yeah. certainly would make sense that they would be somehow related. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I think probably like based on meaning, it's possible that the idea of Suris came after Sarat. Um, but I don't, but in terms of the spelling of the words, I don't think that the, that the meaning is the same, but, but the, the colloquial like usage potentially impacted the way that we now talk about um, Suris. And we don't know the house, right? We don't know whose house they were referring to. Um, in terms of like <clears throat> a specific person <clears throat> or, or or people, yeah. So um, it's all the people who are now entering this this land. So it's the people who are following Moses and Aaron. It's their homes. But it's, it's it says a house. It doesn't say all the houses. Um, upon a ha- and I inflict interrupted plague upon a house. And I see you're saying, um, yeah. In the Hebrew, it's not that clear. I mean, it's not that specific. Um, so in the house of the land that you've taken possession over it's, it doesn't say habayit or anything like that it's nothing specific to one place Joanna two things um, one is it's sort of fascinating to me like that it's the Kohen who's in charge of dealing with this kind of issue like you know in terms of structures of leadership and their prophets and are there other leaders like when something like this happens, the leader that you're going to go to is a Kohen. So that that's interesting to me that it falls within the realm of Kohen duties to deal with this. Yeah. And um, the other thing that is interesting to me is this, you know, after having the laws of um, Tara'at earlier that we need specific laws on how to deal with it in the land over and above what just the general. And there's something interesting to me about how this is all outlined, because when God gives you the land for possession, meaning that land was in God's possession. And so there's something here about, you know, who's in possession of what God was in possession of the land. Now the people are, and the people are in possession of a house and this relationship between owner and user and Sarah to me is something that's feeding into the need to have some verses that deal specifically with this over and above what came before. Yeah. 
Um, to the priest piece, I'm going to actually be speaking about that tomorrow. That's my drush for tomorrow, not drush, my, my learning with all of you tomorrow during davening. So if you're going to be at Shahri, we're going to talk a lot about why the priest, uh, what was, how was this part of their duty uh, as, as a Kohen? Um, and the other piece we're going to get into a little bit, I think both Rabbi Shapiro and I have pieces on, on this, uh, this question that you asked in terms of possession and who has the possession and what does it mean that it's only once it's in possession that this plague happens, all those things. We're going to get into that a little bit with some of our commentators. Any other questions before I pass it over to Rabbi Shapiro? Oh, you want me to go first? Okay. Be good, it could be an elegant segue. Yeah. I'm all about elegance, as we've learned. Okay. Um, so, so here's just going based off of this, uh, this question that Joanna just asked. Here's Rashi's commentary specifically on this question of when they come to the land, like how is it important that all of a sudden when they come to land, then there's going to be this plague of leprosy. So I'll just read it first. This was an announcement to them that these plagues would come upon them, which is found in, uh, in our Midrash, because the Amorites concealed treasures of gold in the walls of their houses during the whole 40 years the Israelites were in the wilderness in order that these might not possess them when they conquered Palestine. And in consequence of the plague, they would pull down the house and discover them. I, first of all, think that this is such a funny idea um, that there was like a little treasure hunt happening around <laughs> around these random cities um, and that that there were plagues uh, conveniently crafted and inflicted upon a people just so the treasure hunt could commence. Um, I, I will say, I, I think it's because of the Vinatati, right? That, that it, right. it's... God's yeah. putting this plague on the on the on their homes. Well, but right, but that like I'm I'm giving to you, right? That that like how can it be like? Oh, interesting. The, giving of the of these treasures as something that God was doing beforehand. So they no, no, no. Go back. Go back up. Go back. Go back up. Go back up to the verse. You have it right because it says Ani no ten lachem Like, why would it? be that like I'm giving you this plague of tsara'at and I think the midrash that Rashi's picking up on is saying like because it because you're going to wind up with something right like the language of natan is the language of like a, a gift a present congratulations here is your house leprosy right like that that doesn't make much sense oh. but that the house leprosy is what leads to you but again, getting, how, getting the how silly is that, right? Like that's such a silly concept that you would have to live through something that is devastating to your home. And then as we hear earlier on to, to you and to your clothes and to your, to your possessions, just so that you can be given something. Um, I'm not saying it's not silly. I'm just saying there's a linguistic anchor for the silly. Yes. Yes. There is. <laughs> Very good. Um yeah, so this is one of the reasons that that Rashi brings for us that um, that it seems as though it was important as to who was in those homes when the leprosy struck in terms of who was in those homes and who had possession over those homes in order to, as Rabbi Shapiro was saying, kind of get to the ultimate goal of what those homes were going to then gift the people. Elon. Reading this uh, from a sense of, of modern sensibility, it's, yeah. one is struck by the notion that this is very similar to germ warfare, right? I mean, it, it, you know, it's one thing to go in and conquer people, and that's all kind of part of, you know, that's all fair, all's fair in love and war, right? But to, but the notion of subjecting these people to leprosy in order to find their gold. Is, is is I must say to me quite distasteful. Yeah, I I totally agree. It's actually the reason that I added this commentary because I I think it's distasteful is a great word. I think it's a it's a it's a terrible way of us needing to think about why this plague might have you know uh, come to the people 
And then there, and there's this idea, I'm going to go off on, on a tangent for 30 seconds before I pass this over to Arashvira. There's this concept in the Talmud called Isarim Shel Ahava. And Isarim Shel Ahava, Arashvira and I... Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I've talked about this before and he really doesn't like it. I don't believe in this as a theology, but I do think that it's interesting that the rabbis talk about it for so long in the Talmud. And it's this concept that if you have had a harder life in life, that you will have an easier life in the world to come. And it kind of, and, and vice versa. And it, this, that comes as, as kind of a parallel to me in this situation. Like, okay, we're going to give you a house that's inflicted with this plague, but don't worry, you're going to get something great at the end. Well, I don't want the thing at the end. Just don't give me the plague to begin with. So I, I, I agree. I think it's distasteful. I think it's also a workaround. I think that instead of blaming God or blaming the people instead were saying, well, there was this really nice thing that you could get at the end. So that's why it had to happen, which um, I also don't, don't really appreciate. Rabbi Shapiro. You're going to, you're going to give it to me off of that. Really? Yeah. Why not? Okay. Um, I don't, I don't like that concept. I, I will say that in a, in a, I've already, I already said, I also don't like that concept. Well, you brought it up. I, did. I think it's fascinating. I don't like it. Um, he's Cooney had a, had a similar kind of thought to it from a slightly different angle, just as long as we're talking about, about this verse a bit, um, which is that, you know, we, the, the, the conquest of Canaan, we know is a, is a complicated and not particularly, um, uh, pleasant thing to be talking about. And he's Cooney grounds it even a little bit differently, he talks about basically how if when, when you're living in the land, he, do, he doesn't play treasure hunt with it, but he goes in the direction of idolatry. And he basically says that like, when you move into the land, if you're in a house that has Sarat, that's an indicator that there was idolatry happening in that house. And that's why you have to go through the purification ritual in order to like make the house okay again. So it's a little bit less scavenger hunty um, and a little more indicating that like there was something happening in this house that is not in line with the way that you should be like, like living your life now. In some ways, actually, it, it strikes me as like the inverse of the concept that that we learn about in a few different places about that like if if a site has been a synagogue right or a house or a Beit midrash a place of learning there are certain things that you're actually no longer allowed to do with that property even if the synagogue or the Beit midrash is no longer there right this is this is like the the idolatrous flip which would be a great name for a for a rock album um, this is like the idolatrous flip of that, right? Which is that like, if this is a place where this stuff has been happening, there needs to be a cleansing. And if you didn't know that this was happening there, that Sarat is going to, is going to show up and indicate that to you. Right. Which, which I think is um, like a, a, a little more practically within the construct of what was happening um, when, when the people um, went into the land. But I, um, yeah. but I think that there's something, and, and maybe this speaks to my teaching of Judaism, uh, or the pedagogy around which I teach Judaism. I, I think there's something very problematic around putting up obstacles for people to try to get to something that is ultimately going to be more meaningful if it was harder to get to. Um, like the concept of, of having a convert come three times to a person before them saying, yes, you can convert and study with me. I, I get the idea. And I also think that there is something, there's something really difficult about imagining that blockades are being put up so that you can fight through them to ultimately get to whatever the goal is or, or the, the beautiful, you know, gem in the walls needs to come through through this plague first 
And that, that, to, that to me is really like, I was thinking about it actually this morning during Daily Minion, that our Daily Minion, I love our Daily Minion. I think it's wonderful that we have it. I, I like going. Um, Frost was giving me a face. I'm not sure why. I do. I'm very interested to see where this is going. That's what I'm uh, I don't inherently think that anybody's Daily Minion is welcoming. Um, and the reason that I say that is because the people who come to Daily Minion come to Daily Minion every day. And so for the most part, and so the people who don't come every day and come on a one-off of which we had someone today, it's very hard to know where are we? What C-Dur are we even using? What page are we on? How do I say Kaddish as fast as this person who says it every single day and knows to say it quickly? And, and I think that that's, that is a hard concept to then expect that person to return again and again and again. Um, and I know this is a bit of a stretch, but I, I do think that those stumbling blocks or those boundaries um, that that keep people from feeling like something is accessible is is not as good as if God had just said, there is something waiting for you. Let me show you how to get it. But rather making them deal with something terrible in order to feel like it was really a gift at the end. Again, I mean, I, I appreciate the concept. I, I guess I don't really see, I, I don't see it as that's the core concept. And then that was like placed within the verse to teach that. I see it more as the commentators wrestling with this word vinatati and how can you possibly understand something like, like flipping around what you're saying, how can you understand the concept of Natan as like, here is your tsara'at, how can you understand what that word is within the, the construct of that? We know that Zarat is an unpleasant thing. And I see both Kuni and Rashi, um, each of whom are drawn from earlier sources, like trying to make sense of that word and Rashi going in the direction of, well, because you will get this, you know, which is, which is placed within, within the house and, and he's saying, this is how, you know, you'll, you'll know that idolatry has happened. I don't think either of them are necessarily saying Sarat is a good thing or obstacles are like, should be placed. I think they're like grappling with, with the language that's happening in the verse. That's but my why, sense. But why need it to happen at all? Why yeah. need it Sarat to be, to be there? Like, what I see in what Rashi... Well, that's going, that's going back to the verse. I mean, the, that's, that's a question going back to the verse of why does the Tarat happen? There's another piece or two that I found in terms of, like, more of the psycho-spiritual understandings of what's happening with Tarat. But this is, like, one tack to take in terms of understanding what's happening there. I just think that what the rabbis are doing are they're trying to make excuses for the fact that it happened at all. Right? That back to the idea of it being a distasteful way of ex- of explaining what's going on, that the rabbis, I didn't read the Chizkuni, but at least in Rashi's, we're, we're now using this Midrash to try to make it something that at least had a good outcome. Whereas if I had been one of the commentators, I would have just asked why no tenet to them at all, right? Why give, the, why, why give them this Sarat in the first place? Um, if there really was, as Rashi is saying, and a goal at, from from them having Sarat, whether it's based on Chizkunis, which is the idolatry piece, or it's based on the the finding of um, of these treasures in the walls, like why 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 couldn't that have just happened? Why did the Sarat need to be the means to the end? That's that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, Denise. Okay, so years ago, <clears throat> I think when Rabbi Shapiro was at Beit Teshuva, but he came to do a guest star at Shabbat Afternoon Learning, it was the Parsha with the golden calf. And he talked about, you know, that after the calf, you bring the sacrifice, and what does that mean? And what does God need to sacrifice? And, and whatever. And then he said, but what if. The point of this is not to teach us how to tickle God's chin after we mess up, but what if this is here to teach us about relationships? And that came back to me a few weeks ago, and it's been in my head 24-7 ever since, and I see everything through that prism, including this, Um, in the sense that 
it's not to say, you know, that it's good that these incidences happen or that we deserve to rest or that we don't. But if you look at it in the prism of relationships, I mean, things are just going to go south sometimes. It's going to happen. But if you hang in there and know that there's something better on the other side, that can get you through and kind of change the whole way that you experience that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Denise, awesome. I'm, I, I am, um, if you were to ask me, what did I teach on the golden calf at Menchamariv? ever, let alone a few years ago, there is no way I would be able to recall that. So I am touched, impressed, impressed and and a little concerned that you can remember that so well. Um, But that's, that's really lovely. And, and yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, funneling that back to Rabbi Schatz, like, yeah, like, why is it there? I don't know. But, but it's, Although, in- interestingly, Nechama Leibovitz, fascinatingly, actually has not one, but but two of her, like, rich and, like, in-depth teachings on, like, these verses specifically, which I n- would not have expected, right? That, like, there would be so much that, like, Nechama Leibovitz could pull all this interesting stuff. And apparently in the Talmud, at one point it says in Sanhedrin, it says, there never has been, nor will there ever be, a house smitten with Sarat. Good. Why was the law then given? To study it and to be rewarded for studying it. So good work, everyone. We're doing exactly what the rabbis wanted us to do. Um, bonus bonus points for all of us for the Torah Lishma that we're all doing here today. Asher Koach, Asher Koach. Um, so, so it can go in two directions. A, maybe, maybe it did never happen, and we can think about why this might have happened. Like I said, there's there's a couple of different ways of thinking about Sarah that that I can get to shortly or not. Um, but yeah, Denise, I do think it's interesting to think about it through the prism of instead of saying like why does or doesn't this happen, to say like okay, well, well, when something bad does happen, how do how do we respond? Am I am I correctly understanding your understanding of what I said approximately eight thousand years ago? Is that is that what I think I said? Exactly. <laughs> I'm glad I'm still on the same page as myself. Yeah, Joanna, you're muted. You're mute, Joanna. You're muted. Um, I put my hand up before you shared Nechama Leibovitz's commentary. And I'm kind of in the opposite direction from her. When we read this in context, this seems to be prescriptive. You know, when this may happen to you, here is, you know, let's anticipate the situation and this is what to do. Versus if, you know, if we take sort of a more critical view of the authorship of the Torah and when this might have actually been written, was it being written from a descriptive point of view of they had seen things like this happening and therefore there was a need to write about it? And what that brings me to focus on is sort of the end of the episode and a little bit about what you were talking about in terms of the Minion experience, Rabbi Schatz, about does it bring us to think in a broad way about people who, for whatever reason, might be on the margins of society and making sure that there is a way, at the end of the day, there is a way to bring the Torah back into community. So like... um, how do we think about people on the margins or fringes of our society and ensuring that they're at the table? Yeah. And a great ongoing question for any topic um, for sure. And I, and I think that that's, that's part of how Rabbi Shwer and I very clearly based on his faces and I are disagreeing about this, but that's how I'm reading this in terms of it being something that, I don't believe that Sarat was was unnecessary, period. I just am not sure that it was necessary in homes for this reason, for exactly the reasons that you're pointing out, which is if people are already are already feeling dissociated with something or are coming to something new for the first time, why add to that discomfort or why add to that potential judgment that they might feel? Um, before they can actually get comfortable or or feel like they're um, receiving something. Just to be clear, this is not like pro-tsara'at that I'm advocating for. I'm not saying like 
yes, like more houses should be stricken with the the leprosy of the property. I'm just saying like, I I hear you asking, well, why? And I'm saying, well, the Torah is talking about it. So we should figure out why the Torah is talking about it. So that that's, that's all I'm saying. I'm not saying like more houses should be, should be leprous. Yeah, I, I guess I'm just asking the bigger question of I'm great with the Torah talking about it. Why did God do it? That's my question. Yeah, that's usually it. that's usually my approach. You're you're you're. I'm, maybe that's why I'm confused. So I will add that this um, question is kind of directed at the rabbis because you you both have pastoral experience. Do you guys find because this is clearly disturbing that whoever wrote uh, these patches clearly believes that people feel better about bad things that happen to them if there is some kind of uh, future justification for it where actually, yes, you got the plague, but, right? And, and in, your, in your interactions with people who, who, um, who have issues or problems or have had bad things happen to them, do you find that there's any sense of comfort for these people that this happened, but there's a reward? It's... it's I, I'm not quite sure whether this was some kind of a, a primitive concept or whether it still carries forth today, but it's very like, I, I, I refuse to believe that bad things happen for a reason that, uh, that you're, you know, there's no payback for the bad things that happen to you. It's, the, it's not, it's not a theology that I feel good about. I have, I have a lot of answers to that. Um, I'll give, two and a half maybe two maybe two and a half we'll see one is that like i i personally if something crappy happens to me i don't feel any better knowing that like it'll be payoff in the end and it strikes me as cruel to have an understanding of a god in the world who inflicts bad things on people so that there will be a a reward in the end that's not at all reassuring to me personally um and and the like half piece on that is if like somebody asked me that question of like why did this happen to me I never try to construct an answer for them I, I I don't think that's helpful nor do I think it's reassuring nor do I think I have the ability to some sort of somehow magically intuit a sense of divine plan because I went to school for too long and I I talk with people sometimes right like like I don't I don't I don't know I I really really don't. I'll also say that when I, when I started working at Beit Shuva, there is an ethos that is present in, in the addiction recovery community. And I think also present in the world, everything happens for a reason. And the reason that X, Y, or Z happened to me is because of A, B, and C. And therefore, I need to learn from this one, two, and three so that in the end, four, five, and six will happen. There are people who see the world that way. I don't. It's not my sense of the world, but where I fell short as a spiritual counselor when I started working was I would try to argue with them about that. And I would say, no, that's not, that's not, you're wrong. Um, Some people see the world that way and some people find that reassuring and helpful. And it's not my job, just as it's not my job to dictate to people who don't see the world that way, why things are unfolding in that way. I also don't think it's my job to explain to people why their more linear and concrete sense of the world is incorrect either. Because ultimately, if it helps them find meaning and purpose and grounding and hope, great, then that's helpful. And it's not my job to convince them otherwise. So ultimately, I I think when we talk about like understanding the world in that kind of way and finding frameworks for meaning, particularly in navigating really troubling and challenging things that have happened um that's ultimately a very personal thing and everybody does that a little bit differently so so that's that's my personal sense of it like in terms of how i see things and and how i would like work with that in a more of a pastoral capacity but that's my sense of it rabbi shads i don't know if you yeah similar to you i have many things that i could say about it um but i'm also aware of the time. The the one thing I would just very briefly add is that I think that often we hear this kind of narrative from people not around death, but around like disease or as Rabbi uh, Shapiro is saying, like addiction or bringing yourself out of something to the other side of something. Very rarely do I hear, uh, and it's just 
personal, but very rarely do I hear people coming to me and saying, I understand why my so-and-so died because such and such happened. Um, or they're in a better place. I don't think you hear that so much in Judaism. Um, yeah, I, there's a con this is a topic that I could very deeply dive into both from experience professionally and personally. Um, but I think Rabbi Shreer has one more thing to add. And I, again, I'm aware of the time. So Rabbi Shreer, why don't you add your piece? Um, I have lots of things to add. Okay. So we don't have time to add lots of things. So add something. And all the things I have to add. I'll just say that I've been, I think I've said this in here before, I've been keeping one, one big Google Doc, unlike Rabbi Shah. This is, I think, indicative of our organizational styles. You can see when Rabbi Shah pulls up her screen, you see each week she comes up with a separate source sheet. I just have a Google Doc that I plonk everything into. And when I'm working on something the next week, I just like go down, like I bump everything down and I put stuff in. It's up to 62 pages. That's a lot of, that's a lot of stuff. I'm going to send it to Rabbi Schatz at the end of the year, and she's going to collate and organize it all and, and make it into a book. Um, right, Rabbi Schatz? Do you want me to do <laughs> Extra in the 26th, 27th, and 28th hours of your day. <laughs> okay. um, I, I won't get into the, the sources on this. I mean, we've, we, I'll just sort of name out very, very briefly the sense that we've been talking about Sarat very concretely as like something that happens to a house. And there, I think just as much, if not more of the rabbinic body of literature on this. So it's interesting that we've stayed so concrete is talking about Sarat as an indicator of some kind of personal defect. Now that like doesn't solve the, the why, like, like of why this would happen, but it does get into a, a different trajectory and, terms of understanding that like there, there's a really interesting midrash that talks about like if the house has sarat it's because there's been like neighbors coming to like borrow something from their neighbor and they say like no i don't have the pot no i don't have those dates no i don't have those beans and then the house is afflicted with sarat and they have to take all the stuff out of the house and people see that they had that stuff all along, right? That it, it's like a counter to stinginess, right? This person is being very stingy here is a construct for what happens. They have to take their things out of the house. And that is sort of meant to, to remediate that character defect. Um, and you see a lot of that writing in reflection uh, pieces earlier on in the paragraph in terms of the person getting Sarahat. And it's just um, for me, interesting to think about that in the realm of being applied to the house as well, that there's this, um, substantial body of rabbinic thought around what Sarat is, not only as a physical affliction, but as a physical affliction that's um, representative of like a psycho-spiritual defect or, or an area of work that an, a person has to have um, that, that solves none of the thorny questions about why this would be um, the thing that happens, only insofar as to say that like, you know, I, I do without without getting too woo woo Southern California, even though I've been living here for a very long time, about um how like it's all alone peace money, it's all connected man, and like your your vibe is your vibe. And if you're putting out bad energy, you're gonna be feeling bad. And if you're putting out good energy, you're gonna be feeling good. It's definitely not that linear. Um, but I do think there can be some connection with our inner psycho-spiritual state and our, and our physical health. I don't think those pieces are completely disconnected either um, from my perspective. Um, I want to take a couple of minutes before Rabbi Schatz abandons us to go help kids learn or whatever um, because she's the director of youth learning and engagement. Um, yeah. That what? What? That, that's your job. Oh, no, it's not. What's my job? I, good question. Okay. We'll figure it out eventually. Alon, <laughs> um, going to your question, you, I think you, you very specifically um, and, and wisely noted the sense of how it's, it's something like a plague, 
rather than a plague that that the person sees something in their house they go to see find the priest and they say there's something like a plague that's happening in my house um and it's it's actually just in and we 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 joke about it but but it is fascinating how much i'll just quickly pop up my screen once more this sense that like um kenega near eli babai there's something like a plague that has appeared in my home off of that one letter in the torah there's a lot of comments about why doesn't the person just say hey there's i got a leprous house help me out right that that there needs to be a sense of of there's a very specific phraseology that's happening there um and again oh, in the and in the, and in the verse before it says negatsaraat whereas in the second line exactly. it says and negatsaraat right 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 exactly that that it seems to be very clearly differentiated this thing is happening but the person who goes to the priest doesn't say um this thing is happening it says i think something like this is happening um <laughs> what something like something it doesn't even say like this it's like just something yeah and the, there's more than one comment. I mean, the, the Rashi on is, is the cleanest, but basically, well, Rashi just talks about, he says, um, even if the owner of the house is a learned man and knows for sure that it's a plague, he shouldn't decide the matter as a certainty, right? Like, even if you think you know everything, you shouldn't be so definitive in your assessment. And the, the Sifte Chachamim puts a finer point on it. He says that this is about teaching me dote, that this is about teaching good character traits. And he pulls a, a quick quote from, from the very beginning of Masachet Brachot. That's, that's really lovely. Teach your tongue to say, I don't know, right? Teach yourself to say, I don't know. And it's, it's a poignant and brief and I think really rich concept that we could also probably spend a, a very, very long time exploring the sense that even if you think you you really know exactly what's happening, that you should have enough humility um, to have a clear sense of there might be some uncertainty here. I do need to corroborate this, especially as we've been exploring a bunch today, especially when you think about um, the intense process that needs to follow if the house has tsara'at, um, get a second opinion. Right, like make make sure that you're correct before you go assessing willy nilly um, that this is actually what's happening um, to get a clearer perspective on on what's really going on. And I think I think that that's there's a lot more um, on that, but I'll I'll just offer that briefly as an indicator of of there's a lot of depth that we can go into into that just that one little letter uh, based that that Elon noticed and I, and I think has has a lot to to teach us potentially. Yeah, Barbara. I, I just thought I would throw in that possibly the most important lesson I ever learned as a physician, as a, as a learning physician, was to be able to say, I don't know. I think that to be able to tell a patient, for instance, and I'm sure this affects you too as completely in, in the rabbinical profession also, if you don't know something, don't go making things up. So I, I applaud you on what you just said. I appreciate that. And and it and it goes back as well, you know, to the question of of meaning making, actually, that we were talking about earlier. You know, it's an interesting connection there in terms of the question about pastoral conversations with folks and asking about why things happen. I think we can do I speak for myself, I think I can do much more harm than good making a very definitive response to someone about why something is happening or where they should find meaning in something. I think that can be extraordinarily harmful, actually, and having an open conversation with someone and inviting them in um, and, and being really present in that invites a different kind of relationship and a different kind of connection than just um, sort of embodying that authority. I, I will say is like a half step in the other direction. I do think there is um, some symbolic exemplarhood. Like sometimes 
people want to go to the rabbi for an answer. Like if you're koshering your dishes for Pesach and it's like Erev Pesach, and you're like, can I use this? Well, I don't know. Let's have a conversation about it. Like, no, you just need to say, yes, you can use it or no, you can't, right? Like I think there there is a certain measure of balance in all things. And sometimes people just need a concrete answer. Um, well, and it's also the reason that people after getting like a cancer diagnosis or knowing that they are going in for surgery, they, some people, not everybody decides to go to their rabbi and talk about it. Cause it's not just a, it's not just a procedural moment at that, at that point. It's also something spiritual that's, that's taking over your whole being and your mind and your heart and how you pray. And do I, am I prayed for? And, you know, it's part of what I'm going to be speaking about tomorrow in terms of the priest being the one to diagnose Sarah, right? Like, why the priest? The priest is not a doctor. So I, I think that Rabbi Shapiro is right that that often when we as rabbis get asked questions I, or, or, you know, are, are sought out for advice, uh, even if it's not within our own profession, sometimes you have to read behind what's actually being asked and recognize that it's, it's, there's something spiritual there. There's something connected more to, to the soul of the person rather than just their body, which obviously a doctor should be the one to, um, to deal with if it's something medical. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a, there's a lot more writing on that verse about, um, the role of, of humility, um, and how vital it is. And again, like getting into that idea, um, of Tzara'at as not just like a physical something that's happening, but also as, you know, thinking about it, um, on a, on a different type of level. Um, see, look, look at that. We had so much to say about Tzara'at, Rabbi Shots. We should talk about, um, leprosy or Barbara, what was the other disease that it might be? We should talk about, or do you say Hans disease? Hansen's. Han- Hansen's, yeah. We should, we should talk about various uh, skin afflictions more often. That's what I'm taking away from this. And on that note, Rabbi Shapiro. Yes, Rabbi Schatz. Um, I, um, I think that should be the ending, the ending moment of a podcast. Talk about skin afflictions more often. Shabbat You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.